0: Um, great pleasure uh, today to introduce you to uh, Professor, um, I should say, also Lieutenant Colonel Alexandre de Troyes, who is an Associate Professor uh, of International Relations in Geneva uh, and also um, Head of Military Intelligence of the 1st Armoured Brigade of the Swiss Armed Forces. He's also the Editor of the Swiss Military Review and is now, I have to say, a visiting fellow of our Changing Character War Programme. Uh, and of course, the subject of this talk is going to take us beyond coin, uh, in, back into conventional warfare. So, Rob, well, thank you very much for the uh, introduction. Um, a year ago, I committed or edited a text on uh, counterinsurgency. We had a, a conference, and these were the, the proceedings of this conference. Um, so, not too long ago, we had—I heard you talk about drone strikes and uh, information control and so on. So. Here is uh, the, the latest uh, edition of these conferences on information warfare, and as I said before uh, over lunch, um, I'm very happy to talk about the exact opposite of counterinsurgency and the opposite yeah. of uh, information uh, warfare, essentially uh, talking about the, the subject over here, uh, is there a future for conventional defense, and if so, what will be that, um, that future? Uh, Let me say a few things about what uh, moved me in the direction of um, uh, doing this research and uh, study. Well, uh, very, very originally, uh, my first PhD was on uh, uh, technology and uh, war, the impact of uh, the evolution of technology on the conduct of uh, war. This was quite some time ago. Uh, at the time I became acquainted with uh, a very go- uh, now a very close friend of mine, Martin van Krefeld, and was very happy to, to continue this journey with him. And I'm very uh, surprised, interested, enthusiastic to see that some of the these ideas of uh, of 10, 15, perhaps even 20 years ago are are still being debated and discussed, man-machine interface, I just uh, heard those uh, those words a few uh, moments ago. Um, I went on to do a a second uh, PhD dissertation on uh, the history of the arms industry, and this uh, for uh, quite some time has been my specialty, so this is also an interest of mine. Uh, to advise uh, perhaps the industry and the economy about the future of conventional weapons and conventional defense, because, of course, we're talking about very substantial investments and very substantial uh, markets. We've talked about a a number of other things. Uh, Yes, I uh, have a a personal uh, interest Uh, In particular, with regards to land warfare, uh, because I commanded a a tank battalion for the last four years, and so what you are going to see is really the result of a preliminary study that I did for the Swiss Ministry of Defense, and what I have done, or what I am doing, uh, I am in the process of doing these next few months, is expanding this from land warfare to also include air and sea warfare uh, in the the, uh, months to come. Since I work for an American uh, company, industry, educational uh, facility, uh, Webster University, of course I need a disclaimer. And none of the people, institutions, journals, uh, universities, ministries that have been uh, evoked before have, um, uh, are, are going to um, uh, necessarily adhere to the discussions and, uh, and principles and conclusions that are going to be presented in this uh, survey. And I will uh, move on perhaps to uh, ask the question of how contemporary and how important is this question of the future of conventional uh, defense today. Well, I would say it is an extremely hot topical issue just about everywhere around the world. If you're talking about the United States of America, it is a hot, highly topical issue just because of what this is from yesterday, the Army Times. I'm not talking about the raise in pay uh, for those, of course, who were attracted (laughs) to that, but I am talking about the downsizing of the U.S. military uh, I'm not going to talk about that in specifics, but you know uh, that the level uh, is going down. How far is it going down? <clears throat> uh, this is something that, um, that I'm going to, to uh, talk about in just a, a few moments' time. The U.S. Army is actually the loser uh, out of the three, four, five, now six uh, branches of uh, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Department of, uh, of Defense. The U.S. Army will see its numbers shrunk by uh, more than 13 percent. The number of brigades is going to be reduced from 45 to 33. I'll recall those numbers in just a little while. And, and definitely out of the uh, different uh, branches, uh, the U.S. Navy is going to secure definitely its, uh, its position, its uh, procurement. The U.S. Air Force definitely has its uh, uh, foot in the, in the door Uh, But since the U.S. Department of Defense is moving away from stabilization, long-term operations, um, from nation-building, from counterinsurgency, all of those things that we've uh, talked about, uh, and moving into more decisive... Sea air uh, warfare, especially uh, with regards to a pivot to Asia and 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 shifting uh, focus from the European theater of war uh, to the Pacific uh, theater of war. Well, definitely uh, the U.S. Army is 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 going to uh, feel these uh, these losses, and definitely it is requesting it is defending its position rightfully so uh, to maintain certain capacities. And I'm interested, of course, in trying to define determine which of these capacities uh, should be the ones to be uh, rescued or salvaged. At the same time, uh, we talked about information warfare just a few seconds ago, at the same time there's very conflicting signals. Conflicting signals because in the news, this is literally a week ago, a week and a half ago, you see these two articles, one that is showing armoured vehicles uh, in Mons, has anyone been to Mons, beautiful town? Uh, Belgium eat very well Uh, well it has the dark side as everything I'm sure but you see this picture which looks like it is uh, brought back from the past from the 1970s 1980s at almost the same time this is almost an information operation you see these Abrams tanks being moved back for an exercise in South Korea And, of course, all of this recalls to those people who have loved these uh, moments and times and experiences the reforger exercises of the 1970s, 1980s. Well, just how far um, is there a recollection of this uh, Cold War period? Uh, Well, not very much, because a closer examination in both of these deployments here in uh, Belgium and the lower one here in South Korea. uh, If you read the small characters, you come to the conclusion that essentially we're talking about 55 armored vehicles. This has absolutely nothing to do with the order of scale of the military exercises, the field training exercises that were conducted in the 1970s, 1980s, where literally, uh, we were talking about this, we were uh, airlifting, sea lifting, hundreds of armored vehicles across the Atlantic. And this was a naval, a logistical, an air transport uh, exercise. And what you see here uh, in the German countryside was only the, uh, how should I say, the the, the last stage of the uh, exercise uh, itself. So uh, we're talking um, uh, definitely uh, not of this uh, period. We're talking about something very different than this uh, Cold War period at the, in, the, in, the, in the years of the uh, reforger exercises. We're talking about the strength of about 15,000 armored fighting vehicles on the NATO side and something like 35,000 armored fighting vehicles on the Warsaw Pact side, so these numbers that I just presented, 55, is something quite, uh, quite modest in comparison. I'd like to uh, explain explicitly this problematic or this uh, uh, research question uh, that I mentioned before. Um, is there going to be a future of conventional defense? Of course, there might be some people uh, from the mindset that, no, conventional defense is no longer necessary. Um, excuse me for not talking about that, because we have, uh, I mean, there's a there's a lot of discussion that has taken place in the 1990s, in the years 2000 in the United States. Whether you call them legacy or, or otherwise, these forces are here to stay for at least some time, and now it's no longer a question of determining whether these forces will stay, but what will, they, what will be their main. Uh, relative importance and what will be their focus in terms of missions. And so looking at it from perhaps, yes, a modest Swiss experience, I would say there's pretty much three choices. There's three choices. The first is to have those ground forces essentially as a a mopping up, as a civil defense, um, and this is not only the case for Switzerland, by the way, but many other countries would actually require or need the uh, military to perform uh, operations other than war, let's put it this, uh, this way. So security, safety, disaster relief operations. Um, we had this uh, uh, talk where I think uh, speaking about the weather was an important uh, theme over here. Well, you never know. Maybe thinking about the weather and climate change is going to be an important subject or topic these next uh, few years and generations, I don't know. The second possibility would be to have a, a very um, high-tech army, a high-tech land uh, force um, here with uh, many a different uh, gadgets. Um, definitely capable of doing what the conventional armed forces are doing today, but bigger, better, with more range, with more accuracy, and so on and so forth, Uh, with more discrimination, perhaps, as well. And the third option would be this uh, French concept, but today everybody, or just about every country, has its own name for the Bulle Operative Aeroterrestre, and this would be a very comprehensive sea, air, land, battle, if I say C4I star, some people in the room will probably understand uh, what I mean by that, but essentially the, uh, the, the uh, working in the form of a very comprehensive network where the land forces are really a component of a very um, uh, dematerialized, if you will, uh, system. So uh, this will be my, my problematic. My, my question will try to uh, give a few, um, a few hints as to where we are going uh, with regards to, um, to these three options. But now what I would like to do is to talk about the arguments against um, the uh, development of, uh, of conventional defense, of conventional land forces, and of course uh, give a few arguments in, uh, in favor. Well, my first argument, I'm going to be very quick on this uh, because of course there are some people who believe that war is a thing of the past. It's no longer relevant. It's no longer relevant to have boots on the ground. And I found, uh, I'm quoting my sources, this is The Economist, Uh, this is a chart which basically shows uh, all of the different conflicts since uh, the end of the Second World War. And as you see uh, towards the right-hand side, I don't see the number of conflicts worldwide shrinking in uh, in any way, perhaps in numbers of casualty, but for the rest, uh, pretty much, there's the same number of conflicts before the Second World War, uh, after the Second World War, after even the Cold War. So, uh, conflicts are, are definitely still uh, an actual and present uh, occurrence and, uh, and situation that, that needs, or, or situations that need to be resolved. Uh, second argument comes from the coin school of thought, let's put it this way. Uh, People will talk about uh, asymmetric warfare, will talk about counterinsurgency, will talk about anti-terrorist operations, will talk about military operations other than war. And a lot of proponents uh, of this school of thought will challenge the need and especially the resources that are going into the conventional heavy forces because, of course, uh, these forces, these heavy uh, high-tech forces, are extremely um, costly. Now, without going into all sorts of details, I can point you uh, to a certain number of articles and references to this, but I would give two arguments against this uh, vision of things. The first argument is that today, any uh, use of force or any interference, any peacekeeping operation, any intervention that takes place in a developing country anywhere in the world, probably is going to be confronted to some heavy weapons of one kind or another. Because just about every country in the world today has some measure of heavy weapons or heavy firepower. And so this uh, asymmetric school of thought, uh, I would say, today can definitely be um, challenged. The second uh, principle that I uh, I would object to that is the fact that Uh, Certainly, in the 1990s, in the years of dividends of peace, uh, Mm -hmm. there has been a trend to uh, lighten up the forces, especially peacekeeping or peace uh, support operation forces. Uh, There has been a trend to employ lighter and lighter forces. Well, uh, probably Canada was the uh, the trigger for that in Afghanistan. Uh, We have moved since. Uh, Pretty much in the opposite direction and many forces have rather uh, whether we're talking about this was my experience in the Balkans um, With regards to France with regards to even the United Kingdom uh, There's pretty much a trend to uh, bring back heavier forces and heavier weapons uh, just uh, in order to demonstrate a willingness a political will um, To the to the countries that that need this uh, stabilization again, I can I point you to, uh, to a certain, certain number of uh, examples for that. There are those people who say that uh, peacekeeping operations do not necessitate heavy weapons, and um, I have a, a background with the International Committee of the Red Cross, so without going into all sorts of details of IHL, I would call this very much a misinterpretation of the Geneva Conventions. Proportionality does not mean, and most people in the room acquiesce to this, does not mean that you should not bring in a heavier weapon than the opponents or parties to the conflict, but proportionality in the sense of international humanitarian law actually really means you should try and avoid uh, unnecessary casualties and collateral uh, damage. So I think that uh, there is no longer this much of a discussion with regards to uh, as was my experience in Sarajevo uh, bringing in only very lightly armored uh, vehicle or or vehicles that were not armored at all. Uh, today we have uh, we have uh, moved away from this uh, from this policy from their, from this vision and today, more and more, we are moving into a, a vision where we want decision, uh, relatively quick decision, uh, on, the, on the ground, and we want to avoid casualties. And of course, this requires the use of relatively heavy uh, state-of-the-art of um, equipment. Another school of thought will challenge conventional weapons in the sense that so many revolutions in military affairs have taken place that today uh, one could say those heavy forces, those legacy forces that I talked about earlier, those that you saw in my first uh, slide, the Challenger tanks, the 60 plus ton vehicles, uh, are or will become very rapidly obsolete because of advanced detection devices, because of uh, strikes, uh, standoff strikes from the air, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm not going to quote Martin Van Krefeld here, but there's an absolutely fantastic passage uh, in his book uh, on uh, uh, war and... uh, What is it? Uh, War in... from 2000 BC to the present. uh, War in history, I believe. Uh, essentially saying the, the following, uh, the fact that we still have heavy platforms and heavy weapons owes to two things. Number one, the relative imprecision of strikes, despite what uh, the retailers want to, uh, want to uh, make you believe and, and, and sell you. And number two, because if you look at things on the long term, medium to long term, 10 years or more, These platforms, these heavy platforms, are actually more durable than the lighter platforms. I'll try and explain that in just a little while. So all of these revolutions in military affairs have actually not managed to contradict the need for bigger and better platforms. There's more room for improvement. You can add more gadgets. You can add more countermeasure devices in a large boat uh, than you can in a a small (coughs) boat. The same is true for land platforms. There's another school of thought that will challenge conventional warfare, saying um, conventional weapons, saying it is essentially irrelevant and it is irrelevant because there are new threats and these threats are terrorism uh, on one side, they are information warfare on the other, they are cyber warfare uh, for some people. Uh, yes and no, because as you, um, as you perhaps know, um, the military is engaged in crisis management uh, essentially through the lens of uh, crisis being defined by their effects and not so much by their causes. So you will need uh, a relatively large amount of uh, manpower uh, in order to defuse and to care for the constance- consequences of technological disasters, of crisis, of the movement of populations, for example. And so uh, that school of thought basically saying the threats and the needs of the past have been uh, superseded by these new threats um, I would say is untrue. Probably these new threats have added uh, themselves to the uh, to the earlier threats, to the more conventional threats, but have not uh, superseded uh, these in any in any way. There are other people who um, say that network-enabled operations. Remember this Bull uh, operative, our design that I presented uh, before. Um, there are other doctrines that. Uh, Uh, that talk about network-enabled operations. A lot of people will say the importance, the relative importance of the land component is going to diminish within this uh, because we are going to divide sensors and shooters, because we're going to use more unmanned uh, aerial, land, sea vehicles. And therefore, the relative importance of these uh, conventional forces is going to go away. Uh, once again, uh, if you are going to want to demonstrate a presence uh, or guard or secure something, uh, telepresence is not quite the same as being present physically on the ground with heavy weapons. Um, I wanted to also talk about this light versus medium versus. Uh, heavy weapons and their relative or respective durability. Uh, If you are interested, I have a a few uh, articles as uh, references uh, to this. Um, This is uh, a very old story between the wheel and the track. I'm sure that some of you have read quite a bit of literature uh, already 50 years, dating back to 50 or more years um, on this uh, topic. Well, I think uh, it's probably time to end this debate once and for all. Uh, Essentially, wheels have limitations, wheeled vehicles, wheeled or light armored vehicles have limitations. I can even tell you which limitation this is, it is weight. Uh, Each axle has a a technical limitation of two and a half tons per axle. So if you're going to have a six by six or an eight by eight vehicle, it will not be able to be heavier than the number of axles multiplied by this two and a half ton figure. And as I said, I'm very happy to point you to these uh, articles, um, especially since a lot of these vehicles uh, have been designed in my country, uh, the Piranha series of uh, vehicles, you see the problematic that is being posed today. A lot of these vehicles have been built originally to uh, be relatively uh, cheap, uh, to be air transportable uh, within the 10, 12, maybe 14 ton range. Well, unfortunately, these vehicles have grown, and this is the first, this is now the third generation of the Piranha, or the Striker, if you want to call it that vehicle. And those vehicles that are now being operated in countries like, uh, uh, or used to be operated in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, have grown uh, to the point that they are now weighing over 20 tons. This is, of course, with still the same engine, the same suspension mechanism, the same brakes, and this is uh, uh, leading to a lot of questions. Also, the width, the size of the vehicles has grown considerably to the point where these vehicles are uh, almost uh, um, uh, unable to go into heavy terrain uh, because, of course, they they will tip to the side. This is quite problematic. It's one of the limitations of these vehicles. Another limitation, but this will get us into the uh, very uh, technical uh, nitty-gritty, is the fact that these um, vehicles uh, essentially are made out structurally of the, uh, the armor that they, that they possess. It's very difficult, it's very hard to add on a lot of armor on these vehicles, as would be the case on heavier systems, heavier weapons, where essentially the, uh, the chassis is, is one component and armor can be added on at a later stage. Um, It's not really possible, it's not really feasible, it's not very workable on these types of vehicles. And we are now seeing vehicles, I'll just, uh, this is actually from the the British competition, the the Fress competition. I'll just talk about this vehicle right here, the boxer uh, vehicle. We're now seeing vehicles uh, for the transport of infantry. Uh, I don't know if you have ever stood next to one of these vehicles, because that is the same experience as a, John Deere tractor in the Midwest. Uh, These vehicles are basically rolling cathedrals. Uh, This vehicle now weighs 42 tons, and it is as absolutely gigantic and huge as the largest uh, semi-trailers that uh, you can possibly imagine. So imagining those vehicles now moving on the battlefield that have the ground clearance to protect them from mines that have all of the applications and plugs For the personal equipment that needs batteries, we were talking about the dependency on on high-tech and electrical uh, uh, output uh, just a few moments ago, raises many questions as to how survivable these vehicles actually uh, are. So I would say there's probably a limitation, an intrinsic limitation, to the light armored vehicles and probably more of a shift, I'll come back to that, to the heavier weapons. On the pro uh, side, or uh, side that is uh, reasserting the need for conventional warfare and conventional uh, weapon systems and equipment, uh, one of the uh, people that I can, could quote is Joseph Nye. Uh, because anyone who comes out with a bestseller talking about soft power in the 1990s and ten years later comes back with another book called Smart Power This is just, uh, I'll, I'll interpret the subtitles for you. It just means I was wrong 10 years ago. Soft power perhaps works, may work, but then what is the cost of that soft power? You may have to wait for years, for years on end, to influence the situation. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's no guarantee. After waiting for 10 years, Saddam Hussein did not one day get up uh, go to na- in front of national television to say, well, I've had it, folks. Um, you know, I'm ceding power to somebody else. It doesn't work that way. There's no guarantee that soft power works. So today there's, I would say, in the literature at least, more of an understanding for the need for a combination of the soft power, the influence, uh, but also uh, the uh, dedicated, uh, punctual, uh, decisive, uh, hard power actions and intervention. In some cases, I'll, I'll just uh, take out the, the joker card if I, if I need to, um, I will just use the word genocide. There are some situations where an intervention is absolutely dreadfully needed and, and you cannot um, afford to wait for 10 or 15 years for a possible uh, reaction on the, uh, on the ground. I'm moving forward to talk about the evolution of conflicts, because this is very much a a topic uh, here in this uh, center. Um, And I'm bringing back my ICRC hat here for just 30 seconds. Uh, You, I am sure, are familiar with this chart. Uh, Definitely, you can read this chart in different ways. You can say, today, interstate conflicts are a thing of the past. They're no longer relevant in international affairs, there's almost no true interstate conflict in the world. I said almost. But at the same time, all of these interstate conflict, internal conflict, um, I would say we have a a bit of a a, a legal myopia uh, in this uh, sense that many of these internal conflicts are in fact interstate or proxy conflicts in disguise. I can give you numerous examples, but I'll just quote two. One, obviously, is the uh, Darfur conflict, where you have a, essentially an insurrection in the south of Sudan. But on the other side of the border, you also have pretty much an insurrection uh, against uh, the Chad uh, government. And of course, uh, if you go uh, into the detail, well, you understand that all of these insurrections are supported, promoted, uh, helped uh, by the, uh, uh, by the uh, rival Uh, country, the, the rival state. The other example, of course, in many ways, would be Syria. That's opening a can of worms. I am cognizant of that, but definitely it can be said that there were, there have been two distinct conflicts in Syria. There is a conflict in Syria before May or June of 2000. Uh, Twelve, I would say, and then uh, the scale has ex- the scale of this conflict has expanded tremendously since outside powers are really sending in uh, troops by the tens of thousands with a lot of equipment. Uh, that is something uh, I'm happy to discuss if you if you want. But essentially, we're we're talking about a, a conflict which has internationalized in many different ways. Another factor of the renewal or possible renewal of conventional warfare is this graph. This is actually an extract from a um, uh, McKinsey uh, study on uh, the evolution, on the situation and evolution prospects for the uh, arms industry in Europe. And this is a very interesting 17 page uh, survey and study. And it points to the fact that yes, definitely the funding in terms of procurement are going down at an almost unprecedented unprecedented level. We're talking about, essentially, in the United States, uh, a lowering of the procurement uh, budget by almost 50% over three years. This is very, very substantial. But, of course, if you believe uh, that there are these economic cycles uh, and cycles in procurement, you are seeing people like uh, McKinsey essentially advising uh, the uh, uh, CEOs of, uh, of uh, arms uh, firms, uh, and also the the procurement uh, officials, that this is actually a fantastic time to do what? It's a fantastic time for mergers and acquisitions. And there's a name for this, it's consolidation, well this is pretty much the consolidation of the arms sector that has taken cl- place in the mid-1990s that has essentially led the United States to launch some very ambitious programs, um, well, yes, um, half a generation, five to seven years later. So of course this is all futuristic predictions uh, and it can be argued, but in many ways you see a lot of sharks, a lot of investors, a lot of uh, technology enthusiasts here, and perhaps also a lot of policy advisors in the United States of America looking at these graphs and seeing this not so much as a um, lethal downfall of uh, US procurement, but true opportunities for the defense uh, sector and there are different this is actually definitely being uh, piloted in the uh, united states um you're perhaps familiar that last year there was a the signature of a, of the att an arms trade treaty i happen to be involved in that um, because in geneva um, arms limitation disarmament is is very much a, a hot topic um, what i will say with this is that Uh, There's usually a confusion when it comes to the arms industry and arms technology. Uh, Everyone wants to put everything in the same bag. Uh, I'll just uh, put this forward for your consideration. There's in fact three very distinct arms industries or arms sectors, and each one of these arms industries or sectors has their own regulatory, uh, how should I say, um, regime. Uh, You have the strategic arms on the left, you have the conventional arms in the center, and you have these so-called small arms on the uh, right. Uh, What I would like to say here is that um, definitely a lot of the attention has been focused, and for correct reasons, on small arms these last 10 or 15 years, but in fact we're seeing more of a shift today uh, in terms of investment in the conventional, in the heavier forces, and of course if we mention proliferation into the strategic forces. Uh, Why do you think that is? Um, I'll come to that in just a second. Well, because of the BRICS. Um, And today this is no longer so much a market and a, uh, how should I say, an an interest for Middle Eastern countries because the Middle East has been uh, essentially uh, taken over uh, by Asia as the first region that procures um, massive amounts of, uh, of military equipment. I'm not going to detail all of this, but uh, you have here uh, two countries that are worthy of interest. We talked about Japan, and uh, of course I could also have uh, mentioned Japan, plus 50% in defense spundi- spending over two years. This has of course to be mitigated by the fact that the yen has uh, decreased in value by about 30%, but still uh, this, is, this is extremely sizable uh, I can give you another um, uh, number of examples uh, with regards to uh, uh, very large um, uh, defense acquisition projects in China or other countries in the um, in the Pacific uh, region. I'll just throw one word out at this point, and I will say that these weapons here on the left—sorry, the, these weapons here on the right—these uh, are the weapons traditionally of guerrilla warfare, insurrection. I'll call it liberation these weapons here in the center and to the to the left of this graph are the sovereignty weapons. And I like this word because, and this is a very bold statement on my part, but I would say that if you look at the true power or where the true power is going to be in 15 in 20 and 25 years from now, perhaps we will be speaking a lot less in the UN about human rights, and we will be speaking a lot more about sovereignty. I'll just, um, Uh, leave this for your um, for your thought. Another factor that is uh, putting uh, wind into the sails of conventional defense is the American uh, pivot to Asia. Uh, some people will say that it, has re- it re- still remains to uh, be seen just how uh, effective and how um, pertinent, how visible this, um, uh, this evolution in, uh, in strategy is, uh, is going to be. This is not the, 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 the topic for today. But uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the effects that are extremely visible is that the naval assets, the air assets, Uh, the standoff assets, and the coalition uh, partnering partnering, uh, efforts of the United States of America are very visible in this uh, region of the world uh, today. So the losers in many ways are the U.S. Army uh, versus uh, other branches of services. For time constraints, unless you really ask me to, I'm not going to go into the detail of the conventional forces still available today. But I will just outline this fact. We're seeing here a reduction. This is the announcement that was made, uh, was it yesterday or two days ago already? We're seeing the reduction from 17 heavy brigades or armored brigades to 10. So that's almost shrinking this in half. And the striker brigade combat teams intermediary forces are going to remain pretty much the same. What this number here doesn't really tell you is that there has already been a cut in half in the heavy US forces because these US forces, these heavy US forces used to have pretty much double the number of armored fighting vehicles than they have today. So we're seeing essentially a a shrinking um, within a decade or so, to about 25% of the of the, post, the immediate post-Cold War um, levels. This is the situation of France. Unless there are some specific questions, I won't go into the, the details, but essentially France is maintaining the capacity to project up to two brigade combat teams uh, for a very short duration. We're talking about one to two months. Uh, of course, most people in the room will know the uh, British example, The German example follows pretty much those same trends. And if we look at a parallel in the um, air, uh, the third dimension, Mm. you see here the very substantial reduction in uh, available air forces or readiness air forces Mm. in Europe. Um, I like to point out next to this graph that today the largest conventional military force in Europe is, of course, as everybody knows, Turkey. Turkey has over 800, um, I would say, state-of-the-art uh, fighters F-16s. If we're talking about land warfare, we're talking about close to 1,000 armored fighting vehicles, and these are not uh, obsolete vehicles in any uh, shape or form. So this definitely uh, leads us to rethink uh, the defense capacities in, uh, in Europe. Um, you may have heard, encountered, even read this uh, paper, Yes, no, I like the term bonsai armies because this is very much what it is becoming. And with the reduction in budgets, the reduction in uh, the size of armed forces, very quickly um, uh, the question now is becoming uh, what are we going to simply abandon in terms of capacities, in terms of tools, of equipment, and, and what are the core skills or competences that we want to maintain. Uh, when I was here in, uh, in Oxford the, uh, the last time, uh, this is very much what I heard actually from British M.O.D. Uh, officials. I was actually surprised that this is not only a Swiss question, how far can you reduce while maintaining a certain uh, know-how and a certain ability to project forces. Uh, this is very much the case also in Switzerland, and I would, uh, I would say that um, also in the United States those exact same questions um, are being asked. How far can you scale down, and what are the skills, competences, and tools that you want to keep in the, um, in the uh, toolbox? This problematic is in many ways compounded by the fact that uh, Europe, or many European countries, are facing uh, a technological, I don't want to say crisis, but an obsolescence crisis. There is, right now, the need to refurbish the house uh, because many of the weapon systems that are being employed today um, are, I'm not going to say midlife because you're going to think that I'm selling you a nuclear reactor, uh, because the midlife has been uh, passed a long, long time ago. So now we're talking about the extension of uh, service life of many of the weapon systems that we are seeing. Um, I uh, talked about Martin Van Krefeld uh, earlier on, and you know of course what, uh, what his answer to the problem is, well, bigger uh, and heavier is going to be the solution. So pretty much everything is going to indulge uh, with an extra uh, 10, 15, or 20 tons. Uh, the vessels are becoming larger, the tanks are becoming heavier, and so on and so forth, and we're adding all sorts of, of gadgets, but one has to realize that all of this is extremely costly. It's not only extremely costly, but it raises uh, quite a lot of, um, of questions uh, with regards to the uh, renewal of this uh, equipment for the industry. Um, I'll just uh, let you know in, in one particular uh, dossier and mandate that I'm very familiar with, um, one of the biggest difficulties or challenges for the industry is the fact that today there's about 2,000 main battle tanks uh, leopard 2 main battle tanks that are available for sale second-hand. So it's very difficult for the industry to actually propose anything new, to develop a new uh, weapon system, a new main battle tank, a new artillery system today, when there are literally thousands of equipment uh, that are still available second-hand, relatively cheap, um, is actually uh, compounding the problem for the, um, for the industry. Um, Yes, I'm uh, nearing the conclusion so I can talk about three uh, possible uh, directions for solutions. Um, I'm not pretending that I have any solution, but this is food for for thought at this stage. There's probably three possible evolutions. One at the technical level, the other one at the tactical level, and the third at the strategic level. The first would be the evolution of platforms and uh, uh, here we would be talking about Um, As I said, modernizing these platforms to a great degree, to a great extent. Um, I have been uh, uh, asked to uh, chair uh, the, um, uh, what is it called now, the uh, International Master Gunners Conference that is going to take place in my country in the month of September. This is an an excellent international uh, sharing um, and... and, um, a cross-pollinization, if you will, of, uh, of tankers or of, of officers, in, uh, in uh, specialists in armored warfare. And one of the things that is coming out of this uh, conference, at least of last year, is that just about every country is maintaining an extremely limited number of platforms at the utmost state-of-the-art level. Um, I'll give you the example that I know quite well. Sweden, for example, today immediately deployable, has 14 tanks, and that's it. Everything else that you read in the military balance or in CIPRI or in the uh, Vienna document, well, all of these are sort of half-half, Uh, and before they are actually engaged or deployed uh, they would need some uh, uh, technical revisions or they would need an upgrade with electronic countermeasures of various uh, kinds. So there's a a diversification, if you will, Uh, presumably there's a lot of people who are using these statistics and numbers, uh, so don't be fooled by what you see on paper. Uh, Definitely you have the uh, overall declared uh, armament stocks. Uh, on these documents that I that I noted before, the military balance and so on, uh, but don't be fooled, there's actually going to be less and less of these vehicles or platforms that are really immediately usable. So that would be one trend, to have only a Uh, an extremely narrow, an extremely limited number of platforms available immediately and have the rest updated or upgraded as need be. And This has all sorts of consequences for the industry. Another uh, consequence uh, coming from this uh, Master Gunner conference, which I actually found extremely interesting, uh, was the fact that more and more there is pressure uh, from just about every level, from the soldier level to the head of state level, that each single platform become multipurpose. It may sound uh, <coughs> counterintuitive, but the idea would be that a platform be able, um, this is thinking out of the box, but is able to carry wounded personnel, is able to uh, retransmit uh, a TV broadcast. Is able to employ a very specific type of munition for a very specific use for example well all of this uh, if you are familiar with the industry means in other words this is going to cost a lot of money per single uh, per unit per per platform but we're seeing uh, actually the the trends uh, moving towards these uh, uh, multi-purpose and very high cost high technology platforms the second uh, area of evolution would be in tactics or in doctrine, and uh, I'm not uh, 100% familiar with the uh, British Armed Forces, I hope to become, uh, but definitely I can talk about my experience with, uh, uh, with the French, and this is to uh, try and explore ways that tactically you can arrive at a more multi-purpose platform. One example. Uh, would be, for example, the uh, combination of light forces or even remote piloted vehicles, land vehicles and air vehicles very close to the combat troops. Uh, this is, um, I participated in a, in a trial uh, with uh, essentially mixed platoons of Leclerc uh, main battle tanks along with reconnaissance units so that essentially you have a, a light force that mm-hmm. is able to uh, explore ahead and and essentially you have very very close by you don't need to go through a whole hierarchy through uh, through any kind of planning that you have uh, the uh, use of force or the, the heavy weapon very very close by when you when you need it so very much uh, this is uh, one uh, uh, one dimension that uh, that france is uh, is leading uh, i have no reason to believe that this is not the case in other forces as well And the third uh, would be in the grand strategic scheme of things, and this would be definitely to further develop this, uh, uh, you can call it several names, you can call it this uh, sea air warfare, uh, as uh, it is in the United States of America, or you can call it the British way of war. This is uh, what I learned uh, from my short stay uh, over here at, uh, at Oxford. Uh, actually, uh, it's also called the U.S. way of war in other places uh, of, the, of the world. But this is very much the expeditionary approach to things. You come in, you are decisive, you do something, you, you change the status quo, and then you try to leave or you hand over the situation to somebody else. And then the third uh, would be very much what we were discussing uh, before this uh, conference, uh, coalition building and finding uh, local uh, stakeholders on the ground that will essentially help your efforts, uh, as is the case, for example, today in Mali, uh, where uh, one is trying to, I say trying, to build capacity in order to uh, be able to remove oneself from being committed to the, to the region. Um, I'll just conclude with these three options, or these three uh, directions uh, of, uh, of travel, uh, just wondering, this is a personal thought, just wondering uh, whether these different ideas that you see here are too good to be true, uh, because here is always the, the question, everyone would like wars to be fresh and joyeuses, Uh, Everyone would like these wars to be extremely short, neat, decisive, and then be able to pull out very quickly. Is this not wishful thinking up to a certain uh, degree? Um, And are we not uh, uh, moving towards uh, other surprises in this area? Thank you very much.